This evening's talk is, like I said, this continuation of these three truths. The three truths are that of impermanence, that conditioned life, which is what we experience, is in constant flux. It's constantly changing. We experience it um, through our life because of these bodies. These bodies are very impermanent, and we see that through their change. As we get older, we see it when we get sick. We see it um, when we go through the dying process, if we are so fortunate to to be conscious through that process. We see it in the death of... Uh, the people around us and the change in the people around us as they get older. But then also um, this practice is looking at it even closer, um, that you know, moment to moment life is constantly changing, um, that everything is in flux, and, and we talked a lot about that last week, so I won't go back over it all. But it's relevant to what we're talking about this evening, which is this um, truth of not-self. And we touched upon it last week as we explored the impermanence within ourself and the, the change uh, within ourself that was happening, you know, in these milliseconds. We, we tested it out with the breath as we breathed in, noticing just all the changes that were happening within just that in-breath. And then again, as we breathe out, it's constantly changing in that we're often living in this illusion of constancy or solidity and, you know, how that might support us in some ways, but then how often it's not that supportive and that there's a lot of um, stress and dukkha that dukkha is the word in Pali for um, suffering or unsatisfactoriness. How much of that is uh, comes from this misunderstanding or not seeing the reality of change. And in, that includes within ourselves. And it's helpful to start with impermanence before coming to this second truth of not-self, um, because you start to get this taste of it. This this uh, solidity of self starts to be tested when we start to see its ever-changing nature. And even just knowing it intellectually, you know, what we know um, through science, that um, just on a molecular level, we are in constant flux. So this idea of a solid being is not actually true. So it starts to it starts to touch upon this not self. Um, the word in Pali is anatta, not self. Some think that this word anatta translates to no self. There's a lot of confusion around this um, in Buddhist communities. Um, some misunderstanding that the Buddha taught no self, that there is no self here. And this actually leads to a lot of problems in our practice. Um, it leads to a lot of confusion 
if there's no self, this idea of, well, there's nothing. We're so impermanent that there's nothing here, right? Um, leads to this um, uh, nihilism, this uh, kind of what's the point? And I find that this what's the point, you know, some of us are wondering that these days when we look at what's going on in the world, what's happening to our earth right now, or what's been happening to our earth as as we watch um, uh, the extinction of animals and our water getting dirty and our air also being polluted and just this um, decay of, of the life that we, we um, wish was more stable here and our part in it. And there can be this feeling of, you know, what's the point? I think those who are in the millennial generation and younger, I'm right on the edge. I don't know that I count as a millennial, but I'm right at the edge. <laughs> um, just maybe a year too old or something. Um, but I do know in speaking um, with friends and family who are in younger generations, there can be this feeling of what's the point? They start making choices um, that are different than older generations. Like, do we have kids? What's the point? You know, how do we um, pick our career? Different, different things that, um, different ways we're already starting to live in question. And so this concept, I bring that in because I think it's relevant with this idea of no self can easily feed these types of fears of what's the point. And so we want to be careful about that because it's not accurate. It's not accurate. And it's not what the Buddha taught at all. There's nowhere in the teachings where he says there is no self. It's important to know. And if he did, it would go against other teachings that he offered, including the teaching of karma. You know, if there is no point, then our actions wouldn't, you know, wouldn't matter. What we do in this life doesn't matter. And that is um, very much not true. That what we do in this life, the way that uh, we speak, the, our actions, um, what we put out into the world, what we think in our mind, all of these have ripple effects. And they deeply matter. So this idea of no self um, stops making sense in this tradition, but not self. Um, this might be more accurate translation. It's interesting, even the one place where no self comes up, apparently is the only place um, in the, the teachings of the Buddha, is when he is asked directly, is there no self? And he refuses to answer. And then the same person says, well, is there a self? And he refuses to answer. The question itself is faulty. Because either way, you identify. There's no self. There's nothing here. You know, maybe there's no point. We solidify around that. There is self. Yes, there's absolutely something here. It's solid. 
we quickly identify. What the Buddha did do repeatedly and the way that the tradition has continued to be taught is to, instead of worrying about what are we in terms of self, we start to look at where do we cling and identify than ways that create suffering for us. How is um, how is it that we are uh, solidifying the self or denying the self, creating more suffering for us? And that was the question that the Buddha thought was worth asking. And so we continue that tradition here. That that is actually the way we, we approach this idea of anatta, of not self. How are we creating more suffering with the solidity of selfing or not selfing? One of the ways that we approach this is seeing that this, this, this thing that is you know, sitting here, <laughs> whoever you are, is a mind-body process. Um, so this goes back to the impermanence piece, that we are constantly in this process, and we're not just one process. Um, we're a process of um, different physical um, uh, manifestations. You know, even just taking a breath, what we do with the air and uh, the oxygen, and oxygenating our blood system, and then how that feeds into the brain and into our our heart and is pumped through the body and nourishes us in a certain way, just from a single in-breath, that physical um, process that's happening. And then all the different physical processes that are happening in your body right now just to keep you alive. So that's one process. We are um, uh, a mind process, so much going on in the mind, the way that we are perceiving the world, the way that um, those of you who are familiar with Vedana, who are experiencing each um, sensation through a particular lens of pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Um, if that's not familiar and you're new to this, don't worry about that right now. But you can know just, even if you are new to this practice, you can know it for yourself and your mind just how much goes through there. How your perception of the day changes constantly. If you wake up in a bad mood, how that changes the way you see the world as opposed to waking up feeling really great. We're a mind-body process. We're more of a verb than a noun. We think of ourselves as a noun. We're taught this strictly, (laughs) that we are nouns. But it's not really accurate. And so if you close your eyes right now and just feel into this mind-body process, think of yourself as a verb. Some of you might touch into this feeling of you're here, but maybe you're not here in the way that you were thinking before. Mm 
Maybe you're a little more permeable. Maybe you can feel into that flux that's constant within you. It's not that you're not here. But the sense of solidity begins to be challenged. And this doesn't have to be a scary thing at all. There's a lightness that comes to this. There can be a real peace to this. You can open your eyes if you'd like. Another way that sometimes I think about this is um, any other process you can think of when we zoom in to see how it really works. Or just like that. You know, so it might be um, your car, or if you ride the bus, the bus, or your bike. All of these have different processes that make them work. But when we look at it, it's just bus, it's just bike, it's just car. Maybe we're more specific about it. We have the, the make and model. But still, we're not necessarily thinking about all of its workings and all the different ways that it gets you from point A to B. But it is a process. And, and you know, if it's a more complicated machine, there are many, many different processes. Um, if it's a newer model, then it has a technology piece to it as well. Um, so we're kind of like that, but way more complicated. Way more complicated. But we don't think about that. We don't have to think about that. That's one of the maybe benefits, but also one of the shadow sides of being a human being, is we don't have to think about it. We're not often challenged um, to think about it in this way. And so there's this illusion that we live in that makes us think of this very solid being here. And this solidity, it can feel be a physical solidity, but it can also be in the mind, the way that we identify with who we are. And we do this in so many different ways. We identify with our thoughts. We identify with our emotions. We identify with our history. We identify with our personality. And we identify with this uh, feeling of constancy. And I'm sure there's other ways in which we identify that I'm just not thinking of right now. We identify in so many different ways. And sometimes, you know, this is helpful to have some identity is, is helpful. It's actually, it helps us be part of society. When someone is totally disidentified, they have, they're really struggling psychologically sometimes. Um, so knowing, you know, who you are, um, knowing where your body is in space, um, knowing your emotions, knowing, um, you know, many different things about yourself is helpful. But held lightly, when we hold on to all these different parts of ourselves tightly, 
Um, one, it's not in alignment with this truth of constant change. It's also very limiting to who maybe we really are. Oftentimes, the solidity of who we are, of this idea of ourself, is much smaller than our potential, or much smaller than who we really are. And we do this in a lot of different ways. Each of us do it in our own way. There's some solidity around who we are. And it's from that kind of grasping that suffering comes. Because it's not in alignment with truth. And because it's not in alignment with truth, it's going to be challenged over and over again. It's going to um, be rattled. And when it's rattled, we feel fearful. We feel stuck. Um, we feel lost, confused. We get angry. There's a lot of different ways we can react to this um, challenging of the, so- the solid sense of who we are. And you can try this with me. Take your, your hand and make a fist. Close your eyes. And uh, hold the fist lightly for now. And even though you're holding it lightly, there's still some effort that you have to make to keep your fingers in this fist. And after a while, it's not that comfortable. But I'm going to ask you to just hold it a little bit longer. And then now make a much tighter fist, putting more effort into it the best that you can and feeling the strain of that, the tightness of that. It's contracted. Now think of that example and relate it to yourself. Are there ways in which you view yourself or you've strongly identified yourself as that feels kind of like this sometimes? In Western culture, we talk about the ego, so maybe that relates a little more. How has our ego, whether it's uh, big and um, feels better than or smaller than, maybe it feels on the smaller side, not worthy or coming from a place of real pain and hurt, maybe even a feeling of being a victim in some way. How are we solidifying around ourselves that feels like this tight fist. And then go ahead and release the fist. Let it, your hand just rest on your lap here. It's such a relief. You can feel the openness of the hand, the way that it can rest now. 
this tight fist in the mind around the sense of who we are is habitual. And even though it's painful, for most of us, we've been doing it long enough that we don't know how to relax the hand and our mind. We don't know how to let go of that clinging. In fact, it might even seem scary to let go of certain ways that we um, have structured this sense of self. Because without it, who would we be? And so there can be a lot of fear that arises in this. Something that I find um, interesting in this practice is that fear, when it arises, related to the sense of self, I question it. You know, what is fearing right now? And every time, it becomes clear at some point to me that it is this clinging uh, sense of self that is afraid and is in a fight for its life. I can feel that way sometimes uh, in this practice, like this small sense of ourself, whatever it may be, is just fighting for survival. And it fights in ways uh, like through the hindrances, so we might feel intense aversion about this idea of um, letting go of this kind of clinging around our sense of self. Uh, it might come in as greed, trying to find other ways to identify, so we'll let go of this way, but then we quickly attach to something else, and that becomes our new identity. Um, it might just be uh, that we fall into a state of um, real restlessness or um, intensely worried and afraid about this, or um, we fall into doubt. We start doubting ourselves, doubting the practice, doubting that any of this really works. And I find that where that's all stemming from is often this sense, this core sense of solidified self that's wanting to survive. You know what I mean? How many of you have experienced that um, in your practice, if you're practitioners? Yeah. Okay. If you're new to the practice, that's something you will encounter. It just is what happens. Um, so if it's not familiar yet and you continue to practice, you'll probably get a taste of that. And that's not to scare anybody here, but just to know that there's a roadmap here. Um, we go through a transformation over and over and over again in this practice. Um, and that that is what leads to actual healing and actual wholeness um, as opposed to this tight um, fist in the mind and in the heart. Oftentimes there's a need um, in this process of letting go of, of the clinging of the sense of self. Um, there's a need for, for healing and tenderness 
and a lot of self-compassion. It's not just this thing necessarily that we notice and we go, great, I'm just going to get rid of that. I'm done with that. In fact, that can be really counterintuitive, but um, it's also very counteractive. If we are just denying parts of ourself and thinking that that is letting go of it, then um, we end up in a, a state of aversion. We end up um, often in anger and maybe some extra fear. Uh, so this idea of you know letting go means de- denying parts of ourself is really not accurate either. It's coming into close contact. It's really getting intimate with all these different parts of ourselves, all these um, mind-body processes, all these different ways that we might be um, tightly identifying and seeing where's the harm in that. What's going on here? This process of letting go, of opening the hands, if I just continue with this metaphor, um, it takes tenderness. It takes patience. It takes um, an understanding that uh, this letting go happens in its own time. That even though we can bring our int- intention to it, we can bring our practice to it, we're not that much in control of how this unfolds in terms of time. But what we can do is bring uh, our heart to it. And that makes all the difference. I'll give you an example. Um, so, uh, not that long ago, I started going through um, different trainings um, and different, uh, started joining different groups looking at white privilege and um, racism you know, and looking at my own uh, privilege and the patterning of racism in my own mind. And I did that. I started doing that because, one, I'm teaching and I wanted to, um, you know, develop that, that side of my understanding so that, you know, as I'm, I'm teaching, I'm not causing more harm. But also because I could see that there was something that I was denying about myself in these areas. Uh, that was not only causing, causing harm to others, but causing harm to myself. There was some kind of disconnect here. Uh, and the disconnect was that I was kind of denying um, these patterns within my own mind. You know, as a liberal Californian <laughs> and a white, a white liberal Californian, you know, in my mind, I thought, um, you know, well, I'm, I don't have racist patterning. I'm the farthest. I'm a good person. (laughs) Hey, white people, does this sound familiar? (laughs) And, um, you know, yes, I'm a good person. And yes, there's deep patterning uh, in my mind that I've been taught and, and just societally has been supported. It's supported through my my sense of privilege um, and also covered up because of my privilege not needing to necessarily look at this. Uh, and as I started going through these classes and 
trainings and going, joining these different groups, this, um, this part of me, I started to really come up against like, wow, yeah, I have these spontaneous thoughts that are racist or, you know, I'll have these kind of internal reactions. They're not necessarily, um, you know, a full thought, but I can feel a tightness in my body in some way that lets me know, wow, there's the patterning. Or I'm seeing through a lens that is not conscious of the privilege that I'm holding in this moment. And I'm saying it like this very matter-of-factly now, <laughs> but as I went through this process and started coming up against, you know, my idea of who I was, it was really painful. I could feel that tight fist around the idea that I was a, quote, woke <laughs> human being. It was really painful. This is white fragility, if you've heard that phrase. This is, this is the tightness around this particular idea of self. And it took time. It took process. It took, you know, it's still in process. I don't really like this term woke that much because it's implying that there's some finality to, you know, understanding all of this. Um, I'm not finding that to be true. It's an ongoing thing. But, you know, the more care I could take to this part of myself and not feel like I had to deny it or push it away in some way, but keep bringing healing to it because it needs healing. This is, um, uh, you know, these patterns are um, causing separation. They're causing harm. This is deep dukkha. Hatred and racism and bigotry and all the ways that we other. Uh, this is rooted in deep dukkha. So the more I could bring this sense of healing to this part of myself, and the hand started to open, it wasn't that all the patterning was gone, but suddenly I could see it, I could catch it, I could notice it, and not be destroyed by seeing it and catching it. It was like, ooh, there it is, okay, I don't want to act this out, or I don't want to say something right now, or, you know, I need to really watch how I'm using my privilege in this moment. This is important. When the hand begins to open, suddenly we're much more fluid with who we are. We're able to better respond. We're better learners. We're better at understanding not just our own experience, but our ability to be more empathetic and compassionate and understand others who might be going something through something similar or just going through a human experience that we can then relate to because we're not so solidified around some identity. And again, there's so many of these identities. It's not just one. We have so many areas where we have to start to heal and open, open up and see what's really going on here. 
And it is freeing. It's very freeing. But yeah, it hurts at first. It's a little scary. But that's um, part of the process, and it's an important part of the process. And then maybe another way of looking at this, um, holding ourselves lightly, and how, you know, sometimes there's parts of our identity where it's really important to have a sense of that. So an example of that might be, um, I find it helpful to really know, um, you know, that I'm being viewed as a woman and being a woman in this world and not being naive to the way that our social structures work, that when I show up in certain circumstances, I'm very aware that I'm a woman. And that is helpful to me. I know that when I'm sitting up um, in the Dharma seat, that I'm speaking as a woman. I hold it lightly, but I hold that. And there's a certain way in which I feel um, I have to hold myself uh, to hold just the the um, to hold ground and hold uh, power in that moment in a responsible way. And I find there's other situations too where walking through this world as a woman, I need to be conscious of that. And I bet everybody here has situations like that where it really does help to have an idea of your identity. And that denying it um, is not the idea here. Holding it lightly, um, being in tuned with it, all of this uh, helps us be more um, fluid and in this reality, in this world. Does that make sense? Yes. Good. You know, I find there are those who um, are in this world that I feel lucky enough to have encountered um, most of them deep, deep practitioners, some of them not at all, not in the practice at all, but have, um, you just get this sense that there's this fullness, but this emptiness within them. Now, these are people who uh, carry themselves lightly, carry the sense of self lightly, and there's a lightness in their being. But you don't get the sense that they're just floating into space. You know, they're very much here and grounded, and they have a strong sense of who they are. They have a strong sense of who they are. Maybe another way of putting this is that they have a healthy sense of who they are. That part of this is, um, of this non-self is first having a healthy sense of who you are, that we need that healthy sense to let go of this clinging. If we come at it with um, an unhealthy mind, an unhealthy relationship with these parts of ourselves, then then uh, the grasp, the clinging gets stronger. 
You can see the relationship. If we're approaching it with, with anger or dislike, then we're just increasing that tightness in the mind and in the heart. We're going for the opposite. And so there are those who are among us in this world that somehow represent that or embody that. And they are. They're very um, whole. They have a strong sense of themselves, but they're light. And they seem to um, yeah, not take themselves so seriously. Part of this um, is not taking ourselves so seriously at some point. It's not to take things not serious that are serious, but as far as our role in it and just the way that we're identifying in it, to start to watch that. Are we taking ourselves way too seriously in all of this? So it comes with a lightness. It comes with fluidity. It comes with wholeness. There's something very freeing about being in alignment with this truth. In terms of awakening, um, which is the idea here, awakening um, our hearts and mind, freeing it, our hearts and minds from the patterns of clinging, all the different ways that we do it, this one in particular is pointed to over and over again in the practice, just even in the way that we sit. You know, are we sitting there trying to be something or someone? Are we upset with ourselves because our mind isn't behaving in the way we think it should? Do we have this idea of how we should be as a meditator? Or have we solidified around some way that, you know, we've resigned to be as a meditator? I just, I'm not good at this. I'll never be good at this. Or, I'm really good at this. This should be going better right now. You know, how are the ways just within the way we sit? We bring our attention back to the breath, and it's not going quite the way we want it. How do we relate to that? Do we make it about us? Do we take ourselves so seriously? Do we get in the way of each moment? These moments, they're just coming and going. This life is coming and going constantly. Is there some way in which we're identifying that's getting in the way of just being with that. And when we identify in that way, that's getting in the way, can we feel the pain of that? That it's really painful to not be in that flow, to not be in that fluidity. Yes, it's very painful. I think I'll stop there. I'm, I'm hoping that this is digestible in some way for everyone here, depending on, you know, it'll probably be taken in in different ways, depending on how long you've been doing this practice. Um, we have a little bit of time for questions, if you have any questions, and then we'll dedicate the merit. 
we have a mic here to. There it is. Do you have any? Thank you so much for this talk. <laughs> I got to tell you, this is the first time I've heard from any teacher that explains so well and cleared up the misinformation I have in my mind about it. It's wow. exactly the one you're pointing to. <laughs> so I feel like I want to high-five you right now. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. Hey, <laughs> that's great. But the, the other aspect of it that I find intriguing is that this whole thing about how we rigidly attached to identity, I've heard this a number of times by various teachers, that a lot of times we get stuck in practice and and we realize that it's actually we're stuck because we're stuck psychologically. Yeah. And so I see more and more teachers recommending that when you get stuck, maybe you need to do some therapy, you know, along with it. And um, that's what I'm doing myself, actually. And because I went, I've gone through that same thing, just feeling really stuck, can't, I'm not going anywhere with this, you know, but something's holding me back, yeah. you know. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's, that's really important, uh, because sometimes we can't, just by sitting, we just, we can't really get there, you know. There's, yeah. there's some other things going on you know, underneath the surface that need to be drawn out. Absolutely, and it speaks yeah. to the fact that this practice is not meant to be done all by ourselves. You know, that really, traditionally, this practice is done in community. It's done, um, you know, with the idea of seeking out other wise individuals who might know the territory or do know the territory and can help guide when there's stuckness or there's delusion or whatever it is. Um, that that we help each other. So it's great. Thank, Thank you. you. Well, I I second that uh, comment about just uh, the way in which you have. Um, I, uh, Ellen and I were actually just talking a little bit beforehand about how not really feeling that we've grasped um, non-self, and this was just so um, enlightening. Uh, one of the things that um, I was um, thinking about also was that, well, first of all, I, I, I appreciated your talking about identity in a healthy, wholesome way. Um, we're not talking about throwing out the, the baby with the bathwater kind of thing. <laughs> and it struck me that I think that it's the ident our identity that is rooted in truth and rooted in reality is, is what is healthy. And so much of our identity is rooted in delusion. And that's where, you know, we're trying to discern what is real here and what is the story that I'm making up about myself. Yeah, yeah, I think there's truth in that. And the thing is just to notice where's the, where's that clinging? Because even within, you know, uh, maybe we've, we've experienced some real, something really profound, um, We've gotten really close to some of these truths. But even in that, if we then identify 
I am the person who knows this stuff, or whatever it is that, that then comes together and bam, there we are. I'm this great Buddhist. <laughs> I'm this great practitioner. And we've just, we've done it again. So it's tricky. <laughs> we just keep revisiting it. But more and more in this practice, and I think people have been doing this for a long time, find that, that tightness, um, that, that fist in, in the mind loosens more and more. And um, just identifying the relief in that and, and settling in that truth and, and the truths that, that we encounter and really know. You know, it's known down here, not just up here, but it's known that we don't have to, to own it in some way or we don't have to solidify around it anymore in some way. And that's so... Ah, it's so relieving. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Anything else? Otherwise, we'll end this evening nice and early. (laughs) Okay. Thank you. So we take this time now um, to acknowledge uh, together and each of us individually just the wholesomeness of, of spending our time in this way of, of practicing, um, cultivating our minds, cultivating our hearts in this way. We could have spent this evening in a lot of different ways. This was a good choice. This was a nice choice. And then... Um, acknowledging the strength of practicing together in a group. That, um, that in itself has its own effect. And that many of us come here for our own benefit, which is great. It's a noble thing. And it's never just about ourselves. That the way this practice works is never just about ourselves. That it goes out in the world in the way that we um, interact with our loved ones, our coworkers, people in our community, and that it has a ripple effect that goes out into the world in ways we may not even understand. And so it's in that spirit that we dedicate the merit this evening to all beings everywhere. And there are um, a number of beings on your minds this evening that we'll dedicate this evening to. This first one is for the children at the border. Yeah, they've been on my minds too. Um, That we dedicate all the the love um, and compassion of this evening to them. And someone wrote that they wanted to dedicate this evening to our precious Mother Earth, uh, who's under assault and needs our help. So... We can dedicate this evening to the earth. This is someone says to my sister Anne, struggling with fourth stage stage breast cancer. This is for Anne. And then I want to make sure I'm reading this. Is it Amid Apara? Is this somebody's Amid? Okay, I think this is Amid Apara. I'm dedicating this this evening to Amid and to Thomas struggling with addiction. 
comes in our heart as well. And then to all beings everywhere. So anyone who hasn't been named this evening that you'd like to just bring in your own mind. And then opening to all beings, may all beings be happy and find contentment in their lives. May all beings be safe from inner and outer harm. May all beings be healthy in their mind and in their body. May all beings be free. May we all be free. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.